Good morning. Uh, my name is Tony, and we get to uh, read and study Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and, and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so delighted to see you here today. If you're not already there in your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Going back several years, probably 15 or 20 at this point, I guess it'd be closer to 15 or 16 years, um, my wife and I, now my wife, I think we were just dating at the time, and a group of friends uh, had an opportunity to go to a brewer game. And so my whole life, I don't know if you've had this experience kind of transitioning from childhood and adolescence into an adulthood, but almost every time I had been uh, to Miller Park to that point, I had been going there with friends and buddies and other people who drove or going with my parents. And, and I think this was the very first time that I had ever gone there by myself self-driving a group of other people. And so uh, we pulled into the lot. It was a very busy night. And in particular, there was somebody, I can't remember for the life of me who it was now, it must not have been very important, but someone singing the national anthem that evening that everybody else in the car desperately wanted to see. And so we got there um, in just enough time. We were running late. And I said, tell you what, I'll drop you guys off close to the stadium and I'll go find some place to park. It was a Friday evening. It was a sold out sold out game. And so I uh, dropped them off. I headed out to park and, and I drove for what seemed like an eternity to find a spot. I just kept driving further and further. And I was trying to get back into the into Miller Park. And so I parked, I, I rushed in, we watched the game. And as we're leaving, I re realized that I didn't remember where I parked. Now, of all places to not remember where you parked, Miller, Miller Park is not the place that you want to do that. And so I remember telling Jessica, well, I'm not sure exactly where I parked, but all I know is we parked out that way. And so we headed out that way. And about 40 minutes later, we found my car in a completely different lot than where I thought it was. I wasn't even close to where I had remembered parking. And I say all of that to say this, there are times in your life where if you were, if you were asked the question, what do you know that you know, you would find out after the fact, realizing you didn't know anything at all. And for me that evening, that was one of those moments. The only thing I know is that I parked out there and it turns out I didn't even know that. And what I could have used at that point in my life was what I now have, which is being able to tell Siri, hey, remember where I parked so that I don't have to remember for myself. I could have used an anchor, a reminder, a pointer, something to guide me back to truth. And as we come into the book of Galatians this morning, beginning this new series that we'll be in for the next several weeks, we find Paul doing exactly that for our spiritual life. He's giving us a reminder, a pointer, an anchor, something 
upon which we can plant ourselves that is going to be unmoving and unchanging so that when moments of life come in where we begin to feel ourselves drift for any variety of reasons, whether it's a falsehood that we've started to believe or difficulty that we're, that we're in the middle of or temptations that we're facing, we can have this reminder, this pointer, this dedicated arrow leading us back to the gospel. And this is vital for us because in God's wisdom and providence, in the whole of Scripture, in all 66 books, he gives us this book, which is, enti- which is devoted entirely to one idea, what is the gospel? That's it. That's all it covers. And the danger, as one theologian pointed out about the text that we're looking at this morning in verses 1 through 5, is that in verses 1 through 5, Paul says everything he's going to say in the entire book. In fact, everything else that he's going to say throughout the remainder of Galatians is really just an extrapolation building upon what it is that he says in these first five introductory verses. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves that Paul would ask us coming into this text this morning is this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Gospel is a word that we use all the time. We use it certainly within our Christian context. We use it in other contexts as well. Well, that's the gospel truth about fill in the blank, right? We use that language often, but when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do we actually mean? Because we've all heard Christians, well-intentioned and well-meaning, ascribe all sorts of things to gospel truth that actually are not the gospel at all. And the answer that Paul gives us, he gives us this very explicitly in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. In that text, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there's a theological truth in what he says in Romans chapter 1 that he extrapolates here in in Galatians chapter 1, which is that the gospel is intended for these two distinct people groups. That the gospel was first offered to the Jews, to, those, to the chosen people of God in the Old Testament that were set apart as a people belonging to him. That that was the first recipients of the gospel, but that in God's grace, the gospel has now been extended to all people, to Greeks, as, as they're referred to in Romans chapter 1, which is just another term for Gentiles. It's you and it's me. It's people who were not part of the chosen nation of Israel, but who in God's sovereignty and grace... We're part of his chosen family. And so as we think about how to define the gospel, I think we need to do it in two different ways. And I'm going to give you an illustration of how we do this. One of my favorite definitions of the gospel comes from a little booklet called, in fact, What is the Gospel? by a man named Greg Gilbert. And here's how Greg Gilbert defines the gospel. I think it's very helpful for us. He says, the gospel is the good news that even though we are rebels and sinners against the king, God in his love has acted in Jesus to save us from our sins through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That even though we were rebels against his will, even though we had fists in the air against God, as we just sang about, that our scoffing voices, as it were, were calling out against Christ as he hung on the cross. Through our words, our deeds, our actions, through the way that we've lived, through our rebellion and our rejection, that is effectively what we've done and that God in his love, in his pursuit of us, still came. He still pursued. He still saved. But I don't think Gilbert's definition is quite complete. And it leads me to another definition given by Martin Luther who said it this way. The gospel is a doctrine that condemns all sorts of human righteousness. 
and preaches the sole righteousness of Christ. To those who accept this, it brings peace of conscience and all good things. And what I love about that definition is that he continues on where Gilbert stops, which is he says, the problem is not only your explicit sin or the things that you might recognize as sin, the things that are lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life and everything that is categorized within those three big umbrellas, but he says, not only is it those things that we would typically recognize as sin, it's also our self-righteousness. Or as Luther would later quip, we not only need to be saved from our evil deeds, but also from our damned good works. And he means that in the literal sense of it, that good works, apart from knowing God and apart from those things, apart from those things being done for his glory and for his honor, our good works are actually damning to ourselves because they lead us to a prideful mindset that starts to believe that we don't need Jesus at all that everything we actually need is found in ourselves, that if we were just given enough time, enough information, enough self-discipline, we could attain for ourselves what can actually only be attained through Jesus Christ. So combining those two ideas, the gospel is the good news that Jesus saves, though we have rebelled against the king through our sin and our self-righteousness, and that Jesus saves us to peaceful reconciliation with the Father, through imputing his obedience and his righteousness to us. And it's that gospel, that explicit, simple declaration of the gospel that Paul is writing here to both explain and defend. Now, why in the world does he actually have to defend this idea? Well, as you get into the book of Galatians, what you find out is that all of this is written after Paul's first missionary journey. If you remember his life story, just an encapsulation, he was a, a faithful Pharisee, a follower of the law. He had come from an influential family. He had all kinds of training and education. He was in a very powerful position within Judaism. And as he's on his way one day to to, to go after and persecute and imprison followers of the way, Christians like you and me, he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ, where Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, Saul, whose name is then changed to Paul, has an encounter with the living God in a way that he had never had before. He becomes aware of his own sin and his own need for a savior and God saves him miraculously and in that moment calls him into ministry. And as he sets out from there on his first missionary journey, he heads out into Galatia, this particular region of what's modern day Turkey. And while he's there, he begins to preach and evangelize and he begins to share the gospel with people and proclaim the goodness of God's salvation. He begins to see people saved and baptized and added to the church. And as those churches grow in those places, he began to train up men from within the congregations to serve as elders and pastors for these local churches in cities like Antioch and and Iconia, and Lystra, and Derby. But in the intervening time, since he had planted those churches and the writing of this letter, false teachers had begun to work their way into the church. Men of education, men of importance, men who had sway, men who were slick with their words, men who had all kinds of degrees behind their name, began to, came, began to come in as experts of the faith into the church. They were teachers of the law, they were they were in line with the Old Testament Pharisees. They had all kinds of clout and influence and recognition. And they began to challenge both Paul's authority, his credibility, and his message. And they began to ask questions like, well, who is this Apostle Paul anyway? In fact, who made him an apostle? 
Because what we know of Jesus Christ is that he had 12 apostles. And here is this man who came along after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who now claims to be an apostle. He claims to speak for God. And they began to claim that Paul had in fact misled the churches. And we find out in other texts what they began to teach, particularly in Acts chapter 15, that as they came into the church, they were saying, how is it that you can trust a man who never even met the living Jesus face to face? How can you believe a man who abandoned the faith of his Jewish heritage? How can you, how can you believe a man who claims apostleship when we're not even sure where his apostleship comes from? And once they had done their best to begin to chip away at his credibility, they began to chip away at the gospel that he preached. Specifically, these false teachers hated the idea that our only hope for justification, which is just right standing with God, right relationship with God, they hated the idea that our justification before God was by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Like many people today, they hated that notion because it seemed so counterintuitive. You're telling me there's nothing I have to do? You're telling me there's nothing I bring to my own salvation? You're telling me there's nothing I can do to earn my place with God? I don't have to pay him back for something? I don't have to earn my way in? And so what they began to do was try to blend in Old Testament Judaism with New Testament Christianity. And so they said, yes, Jesus is great, and of course he's resurrected, and of course we love Jesus. But men who are true followers of Christ need to be circumcised, and you need to follow the Old Testament ceremonial law, and there's certain foods you can't eat. And as long as you do those things, as long as you go to temple and, and follow all of these observances, then you'll truly be saved. In other words, what they were saying is, Jesus isn't enough. And the churches began to buy into this false theology. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, likely his very first letter that he'd written, in an effort to correct their doctrine and to call out the false teaching that's happening in these churches. And right from the outset, you can see, if you're paying attention, that Paul is fired up. Look what he says, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now at first reading, this seems fairly boilerplate. It sounds a lot like his other introductions to his other letters, but the reason that I say that Paul seems fired up as he writes this is he dispenses with his usual greeting. He doesn't spend all of the time that he usually spends elaborating or launching into a prayer of adoration or, or an extended prayer of thanksgiving or all of the other things that he does in the other letters. He jumps right into the topic at hand and he says, my name is Paul and I'm an apostle, not of any man nor through any man, but through Jesus Christ whom God resurrected from the dead. And his reminder in that moment is you understand that you're treating Jesus Christ as if he were still dead. But Jesus is very much alive, resurrected of the Father and appearing to someone like me. And right out of the gate, he makes this declaration and he claims the title of apostle. Now that may not mean a whole lot to us because we're so familiar with the usage of this word in scripture, but as John Stott points out in his commentary, this term apostle is not a generic term applying to any believer. It's not used the way that we would use the word Christian or brother or saint that could just apply to anybody, nor is it simply a, 
a, a term like elder or pastor or deacon that connotes a role within the local church. No, apostle has a very specific definition. Within Christianity, the usage of the word apostle is only used of those who had been specifically commissioned, given a very specific responsibility and job by Jesus himself. And that role had been given to just a few people in the course of human history. In the New Testament, we see that title of apostle being given to the 12 men whom Jesus personally walked with and trained, as well as to Paul and a couple of others who saw Jesus after his resurrection. And the reason that all of this is important and that we're spending time on it and the outset and the introduction to this book is because when Paul claims the title apostle, he is stating that the authority for everything he's about to say, for for everything he's about to declare about the truth of the gospel and the reality uh, of the power of Jesus Christ's life, he's saying that everything he's about to say isn't rooted in his education. It's not rooted in his ministry experience. It's not rooted in his educational degrees. It's not rooted in his in his family name or his personal intelligence, though he had all of those things. Rather, he's saying, my authority is in the fact that I have been saved and commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And as such, what he was about to say wasn't just an opinion or a theory or a philosophy. He was speaking as an oracle of God. That the Holy Spirit of God who indwelled him was inspiring the words that he was writing and the message that he was declaring. That what he was saying was 100% truth because it was not something of his own design. And you find Paul making this delineation even within his own letters. As you read throughout the other letters that were given by Paul, he will sometimes make a clarification where he will say, now I, Paul, not God, will say this particular thing here. And in that moment, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm making a distinction between something that is instruction from me and something that is instruction from God himself. And incidentally, this is why the church today is not instructed to appoint someone to the role of apostle. You may know of denominations or particular sects of of Christianity that will claim that people have the role of apostle or will assign somebody with that title, but understand that apostles had a very specific job at a very specific point in time, and that role was reserved for those who'd been commissioned by Jesus, and Jesus, as far as I know, isn't appointing any new apostles. And additionally, we now have the completed, perfect, inspired word of God recorded for us in the 66 books of the Bible. So when any person stands and presents a message, his authority only extends to what the scripture says. In other words, I cannot get up here this morning and claim a message that is not supported in scripture and claim that I am speaking on behalf of God. In fact, to do so would be to violate what John instructs us in Revelation chapter 22. But Paul had been given this role. And he's now claiming the authority of that role as the basis for what he's about to write. So why does Paul spend all of this time and all of this effort making this strong clarification? Understand, he's not just, he's not just sweating his title. This is not like a person who has an honorary degree from a university insisting on being called doctor. No, he's saying the basis for everything that I'm about to say is rooted in the fact that this message comes from Jesus himself. And the basis for salvation in Galatia has been under attack 
the gospel itself had been threatened. And the reason that it's necessary to correct any threat, any threat, to the radical nature of the gospel is not because the gospel itself is weak and impotent. It's not because the gospel itself needs defending. The gospel inherently is truth. But the reason the gospel needed to be defended in this sense is because people whose lives had been marked by the beginnings of an understanding of the gospel through Jesus Christ were now being drawn away from the truth of what they believed. They were being drawn away into other things. In other words, the reason the gospel needed to be defended is because we are weak, not because the gospel's weak. So Paul's responding here, not out of some sort of religious defensiveness, but the reason we need to understand the gospel, you and I today, and that we need to respond to threats or misunderstandings of the gospel is because it is inherently central to who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. And right from this introductory paragraph, Paul is beginning to set up the defense of the gospel. See, when someone begins to promote the idea that something or anything else is necessary to your salvation other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, that isn't just a difference of opinion, it is inherently a threat. And as Luther quipped in his commentary on Galatians, it is most necessary that we should know that justification is by faith alone and that we should teach it to, each, to others and beat it into their heads continually. See, we all need the gospel beaten into our heads continually because our tendency is drift to forget where our anchor is, to forget where truth lies, to forget where we parked. And now Paul is going to boldly and unapologetically beat into our heads that Jesus alone is the hope for our salvation. Look what he writes beginning in verse 2. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. And these two simple words that Paul begins with in this text are not just a greeting. They're not just a salutation or a well-wish. They are profound declarations of the power of the gospel in our lives. So what is grace? Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor and love of God toward mankind. Grace is the natural disposition of the heart of God. Grace describes God's posture towards us. It defines his every interaction with us. It informs everything that he permits in our lives. Grace is the expression of God's care and compassion. Grace is radical and untamed because it extends salvation to people whom we would naturally assume are beyond its reach. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Grace is God extending forgiveness to us who sin against him, both those sins of commission, doing things we ought not do, and sins of omission, neglecting to do the things that we ought to. The grace of God is pursuing the least and the lost. Grace is God adopting us into his family and calling us sons and daughters. Grace is God giving us his indwelling Holy Spirit to assure and convict and encourage and empower. In other words, grace is flowing from the heart of God continually and freely and infinitely. It is the way that he interacts with his people. It is the way that he pursues. It is the way that he chases. It is the way that he forgives. It is the way that he redeems and that he reconciles. And it marks every interaction we have. 
He says, not only grace, but also peace to you. Because it is the grace of God that brings us into peace. See, as much as God's natural disposition towards his people is grace, our natural disposition toward him was conflict. We experienced conflict when we violated God's design, when we ignored his instructions, when we defied his commands. We feel it now in our conscience when we do what we shouldn't and leave undone what we should. We feel it in our relationships when we lash out with anger, when we refuse to forgive, when we harbor jealousy and lust. But when we experience the grace of God, when we experience the assurance of our pardon, when we experience the reminder of his love and our sonship, it is then that we are brought into peace. Peace is knowing that though I fail, God still accepts me. Peace is the knowing that even if everyone else in my life despises me, God's love is guaranteed and ever-present. Peace is knowing that even if everyone abandons me, God never will. And so the question that Paul is writing to answer is, how is this grace and peace that is grace and the peace that accompanies it extended to us? How do they flow from the infinite creator God of the universe to sinners like me and you? And we find that answer in miraculous form in verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now that is a packed sentence. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And Paul's going to come back to this idea again and again and again throughout this text. Paul's saying the only way to receive this grace, to be a recipient of this grace, to experience this peace, is through the deliverance of Jesus Christ. He is saying unequivocally that there is no one and nothing else that can provide for you the deepest needs of your heart. And do you understand that all of us are pursuing, to some extent or another, a self-salvation project in our life? Apart from the gospel, I mean. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you're not sure that any of this is a reality, that anything in the scripture is true, do you understand that you are still in your own life actively right now pursuing salvation from something? And this world is full of promise about how we find that salvation. We're going to find it in money. We're going to find it in relationships. We're going to find it in in business success. We're going to find it in our families. We're going to find it in sex. We're going to find it in whatever it happens to be. That's where we're going to find our ultimate meaning. In other words, you are trying to justify yourself in someone's eyes. Either you're trying to prove something to somebody else in your life, maybe to a parent living or dead, trying to show your worthiness. Maybe to someone who abandoned you. Maybe to a spouse, maybe to a child. You're trying to prove your worth, your value, your identity through what it is that you pursue in your own life. And even as believers, we can fall into this old mindset. And we couch it in all sorts of religious terms. We couch it as, well, I'm just trying to pay back God for what he did for me. I'm trying to live the right way so that I can maintain my relationship with him. I'm trying to do the right thing so that I don't fall out of favor with him. 
as if your relationship is hinged on your ability to perform. There is no one and nothing else that can provide for you the deepest need of your heart. And the way that Jesus Christ did that was by giving himself. Paul says, your salvation, brother and sister, is entirely rooted in the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, part of what makes the gospel the good news, which is literally what gospel means, is its exclusive nature. Now, that seems backward to us in a culture that prides itself on its inclusivity. How can something that is inherently exclusive be good? Well, think of it this way. If salvation could be achieved or added to by your own good works or by your own good deeds or your own adherence to the law, then Jesus died for nothing. In other words, why did Jesus need to come if ultimately your salvation rested in your hands? If there was something, anything that you could do to contribute to your own salvation, then inherently Jesus' death was unnecessary. And if Jesus' death was in any way unnecessary or incomplete, then it wasn't a loving gesture and it wasn't a kind example. It was a foolhardy act. If Jesus' death was in any way unnecessary, then he wouldn't be deserving of wonder and glory and worship. He would be deserving of ridicule. See, when you add anything to the gospel, you have lost the gospel. And ultimately, that is the point that Paul is going to drive home in each and every verse in this text. So when we try to say, that it's Jesus plus my good works or Jesus plus my church attendance or Jesus plus my obedience or Jesus plus my baptism, what we've declared is that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. And as Luther quipped, these words are very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. When you read that Jesus came and gave himself for our sins, It is a realization of the depth of our sin. It is a declaration of the depth of our sin. And not just the admissible, easy to confess sins that we like to talk about in polite company, but I'm talking about the deepest, darkest moments of our life. The moments in our heart where we curse God. The moments in our heart where we doubt the goodness of God the moments in our heart when we are marked by anger and lust and failure, by jealousy and harshness, by mistreatment towards others, that those are the things Christ came to die for. As one pastor pointed out, every other religion in the world says, here's the way to salvation, follow it. Let me give you this book, and as long as you do these things and obey these rituals and perform these rites and abstain from these foods and practice these behaviors, eventually, if you do a good enough job, you'll be rewarded. But, says Paul, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And as one commentator said, if he gave himself in death for our sins, 
then undoubtedly he is no tyrant or judge who will condemn us for our sins. He is not one who casts down the afflicted, but he raises up those who have fallen and mercifully relieves and comforts the heavy and the brokenhearted. And the way that we see that compassion demonstrated in this text is it says that Jesus came to deliver us. That word literally translated means he came to rescue us. We needed a hero. We didn't need another example and we didn't need another pattern or instruction for how to live. What we needed is somebody who could do it for us. We needed someone who could come in and do what we have been unable to do, though we have tried countless times and failed. We needed someone who could come in and do it perfectly once and for all. And we now have been made, according to this text, the passive recipients of this magnificent grace. See, Jesus didn't come with, to us with a methodology and say, if you do these things, you'll find me. He dove headlong into our suffering. He dealt with the mess of humanity. He sacrificed himself for our salvation. And why did he do it? To rescue us from the present evil age. See, our hope certainly is future. It certainly is in the idea that there is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away and we'll be face to face with the Savior who gave everything for us. But Paul is going to point out that not only is the effect of Jesus Christ's sacrifice future, it is also present right here and right now that we have been delivered, if you know Jesus Christ, from the power of the present evil age. In other words, the bonds of sin have been broken. The penalty of sin has been removed and sin itself no longer has the power to dominate your life. You are no longer under the constraints of the law and under the constraints of the sin. In other words, our hope is not just future, it's present. With whatever temptations you're wrestling, whatever failures haunt you, whatever relationships or hardships are going on in your life, you can face them with the confidence that you are fully known and fully loved in Jesus Christ. That there is nothing about you that he is unaware of. And that even in knowing everything about you, he still loves you. And all of this, brothers and sisters, is just by way of introduction. It's a glimpse, a foreshadowing of what we're going to look at through these beautiful six chapters of Paul's letter. And it's what we celebrate when we gather in communion. Because do you realize that when we come to the communion table, we are not just participating in some rite, some mere religious observance that we can check off on our list as one more thing we've done for God. As if our partaking in this does anything for him. Rather, as we come to communion, what we are recognizing is everything Christ has done for us. The Lord's table itself is a declaration of the gospel. It is the gospel in visible form. But in a very tangible way, as we pick up the bread, we are reminded that Jesus gave his body, that he came in human flesh, that he didn't just send a divine book to us in order that we may find our way into his spiritual presence, but he came physically for you and for me. That he suffered brutally, under our hand. And to the extent that we would say, well, wait a minute, I wasn't there and I never swung a whip. I never drove a nail into his hand. And to the extent that we would say that, do you understand that when Jesus Christ died 
for our sin inherently, the thing that he was dying for was you and me. It's what Paul says here, he died for our sin. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. For everything that Jesus Christ suffered for, suffered rather in physically, the experience that he had spiritually was far more significant. That he took the eternal penalty for your sin and mine on himself on the cross. And that as we partake in the wine or the juice, we are reminded that the beautiful and perfect blood of our Savior was shed for you and for me that the penalty that we deserved was taken out on him. And that all of that was done so that the grace and peace of God could be extended to sinners like us. So that we could, in a very real sense, commune with the creator of the universe, with the God who stands outside of time, who holds everything in his hand, communes with you and I, that he loves to be with us, that he is with us. And that he provides through this table a reminder of the communion that we have one to another. That we have also been saved into a family. Brothers and sisters who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that he's delivered us from the present evil age, that we stand here right now redeemed, perfectly accepted, perfectly forgiven, no matter what this life entails and no matter what comes in the future. And a confident hope that there is a day coming where as, Matthew, where as Jesus states it in the book of Matthew, he will once again partake in this meal with us, where the wine will flow and the bread will be broken and we will feast together with the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That is what we remember, it's what we celebrate, and it's what we partake in when we come to this table. So with the grace and peace that comes through Jesus Christ, our Savior, be the thing that motivates us as we come to this table, the reminder that we see. And so what we're gonna do in just a moment is we're gonna pray and then we're gonna take a few minutes to be still and to be silent. We recognize, by the way, that for some of you, that's a very new practice, perhaps a very uncomfortable practice. And our encouragement to you is try your best not to be uncomfortable. Enjoy the fact that as we are sitting silently together, we are in the presence of God. We're enjoying his presence. We're remembering his presence. We're spending time with him. And, and again, remember that you are among family. Even if you don't quite feel like family, you're among family. So if kids make noise or somebody sneezes or coughs, it's fine. And then after several minutes of silence, we're gonna, we're gonna come together, we're gonna receive the elements, come down the center as you're able and go around the outside. We'll receive the bread and the cup and then please wait to take that. We'll take that all together in just a few minutes. But with that, would you go into this time of silence as we pray? God, thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you that you gave us the Apostle Paul not because our salvation comes through him, but because he stands as a testament to the way that your grace pursues. That if you're able to save someone who is on his way to murder and imprison believers, you can save people like us. And if Paul stands perfectly accepted because of the work of Jesus Christ in his life, then we stand for those of us who know you perfectly accepted because of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your blood was shed, 
that your body was given and that you did all of this according to the perfect will of the Father. So God, do in us what we're unable to do. Remind us of what we forget. Point us to the truth of the gospel where we would be tempted to forget. And we'll do all of this in your name. Amen.